Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of Stationary Freaks with myself, Rob Lambert, and of course... Helen Lazowski, me. And today we are so, so excited. We've got a very, very special episode for you because today we are joined by a Sunday Times bestseller, Helen Callahan. Helen, welcome to the show. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Hello. You know, me and Helen are just super excited. We've got loads of questions lined up. And all sorts of goodness going to come from today's episode. And as wannabe authors ourselves, we're kind of super excited to get tips and tricks and all that kind of good stuff and hear your story. But of course, we're also interested in the stationery. So I'm going to hand over to Helen Lazowski, that is, who's (laughs) going to take a bit of a lead on today's episode. So Helen, let's go for it. Thank you. So um, Helen... Callahan. It'll be fine when we're talking to each other, Helen. It's only Rob who's going to have the confusion. <laughs> so you are a published author, just for listeners, uh, a published author of psychological thrillers. Yeah. I think there are you were three out there, and I know Rob's really great at putting uh, links in the, the show notes, so that will be great. Um, so we kind of stumbled into discovering you were an author um, by you and I were chatting um, about NaNoWriMo, which I have spoken before. So anybody who doesn't know, NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing Month. And it's this whole virtual community that gets together in November and they try to write an entire novel to varying degrees of completion uh, within that month. And the idea is it's like a concentrated community to help you focus. And apparently, Helen's a big fan of this. So how long have you been doing NaNoWriMo, Helen? Um, well, you know what? I was looking to update uh, my NaNoWriMo page, and apparently it's like it's some crazy amount of time since I opened it. It was like, um, I think it might be 2007, something wow. like that, because it tells you when you've been a member from. And it was, it was, um, I think it was 2007, something like that. I can't remember the actual year, and I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> so long. And you still use this, do you? You still use... I do. I don't use it in the way it's intended, though. Um, it really is beyond my power to write a novel in a month. Uh, <laughs> it normally takes me two years. <laughs> and that's with practice, I'm guessing. So Yes. Yeah, it does get hard. It gets harder as you go on because um, when you're... And, and this is the whole NaNoWriMo point, is the fact is that you write a lot of words. I think is it 1,600 and something every day? And the idea is to get you past your self-consciousness because self-consciousness is the enemy of creativity and to get you in your flow. And um, I think that the uh, it's really, really good for that. But that's not really like a gr- And there have some, been some very successful novels come out of it. Someone told me that Erin um, Morgenstern, The Night Circus, that was a nano oh, really? book. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if she wrote it in the month or she did it over several years. Cause... I think it's very unlikely she wrote it as it is in the month. She probably got um, the bare bones down because it is only about 50,000 words, which is like for a commercial novel is like not an awful lot. And then she would have um, played about with it and yeah. um, and edited it and polished it up because it's so much easier to polish a thing than it is to, um, you know, create it out of nothing, I guess. So I, I, I'm quite interested in this because it feels that there can't possibly be a place for traditional analog stationery for modern authors i mean <gasps> oh, because well, I, your mouth. 
I do feel like I'm baiting you a bit here. Um, <laughs> because I happen to know, like me, that you use Scrivener to move stuff around and it's a really, really cool tool for, for, for authors. And there are many out there. It's not, it's just one. Yeah. But, but actual pen and paper. Now, I know that you use pen and paper, but I don't know really how you can possibly do that as an author. So can you talk me through how that would be for you? I can, I can. It's, um, it's actually a really useful tool. So when I'm planning and when I'm, um, I'm thinking through things, it is much, much easier to write things down on paper to do that analog thing because you can, I, I have yet to find a software that properly sort of, you know, encapsulates, you know, I mean, kind of like the mad scribbles and the arrows and the, you know, and there's sort of like, and then you're crossing out over the top. And the thing is as well with crossing out over the top is you actually do want to still see what was beneath it. You want to see your process. You want to see what changed. And um, and a lot of the times you can look at a thing and say, well, why did I change your name from that? I actually kind of liked that. And it's not just the planning, but it's actually also the writing. So I learned, to, God, back in the day, giving away my age here. So I learned to touch type at school. And um, when it was actually typewriters, typing was the class that you took. Oh, my God. What I find is that I'm actually really fast. I can type quite fast if I have to. But sometimes you kind of want to slow your thoughts down. Oh, Rob's a big fan of this, aren't you? Yeah. Um, Sometimes you need those breaks. And because my handwriting is now kind of almost a secondary skill for me, I find that if I slow down and I write um, that it's much that. I have to think and choose the words and my head just doesn't run away with me. And finally is that sometimes that blank white computer screen, that can be a bit overfacing. That can be intimidating, especially when, you know, it's early in the project and, you know, you don't quite know what's going on. And you've got this constant fight in many ways. You want to maintain quality. But also, you don't want to build in this editing while you're writing, this sense of self-consciousness, because it's, in many, many ways, it's just not helpful. You think, oh, you can't write that. That looks stupid. And the minute you start thinking, well, you lose confidence in yourself, it just becomes so much harder. Whereas it's much, much easier to just um, to write that in an analog way. No one will ever see it. It's just um, nonsense. It's there in your crappy handwriting, and anything you write is okay. And it's something that's come in a lot of writing lessons and, and instruction books. And it is actually fantastic advice is that when you're writing and it's not flowing, you've got to remember to just write anything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because eventually it will click into place. You just kind of have to trust that process, you know. That's a little bit like um, there's, there's a fad. It's not really a fad, I suppose, of this morning pages. Have you heard about that, Helen, where... The idea is you just open a notebook, you just write anything, to-do lists, what's on your mind, you know, what you're thinking, what you're seeing, just to get that sort of creative juice going. Yeah. Uh, sounds very similar to that. Uh, I know I certainly, if I overthink stuff, I won't write anything. So just given that this is a stationary podcast, Helen, do you have um, favourite pens, preferred notepads? Do you have... I don't know, do you do character development in one book and a plot in another, or is everything just in one random... I mean, I know Rob... I would say to Rob, you're using your yellow needle pads, aren't you? Because I know he's a favourite of those. I'm writing in one right now. 
<laughs> I did actually write loads of things on yellow legal legal pads at one point, you know, back in the day when they were cheap, but it was all I could get. Um, and I love them. Uh, no, I so I I am I'm a bit mad, really. So what tends to happen is um, if I have like a book, I think I'm going to write this book now. This is what we're going to do. One of the processes of starting that project is choosing a color. So the first one I ever wrote was um, a book called Mephistophila that is not published. And the color that I chose for that was purple because I was like kind of broke in those days. I got one of those WH Smith used to do these. uh, They were like A4 kind of narrow ruled and for some reason I don't know what it is but I love a monochrome notebook I love just one color I don't like patterns on them I don't like um images I it's just the color this kind of pantone color I would take one of those and I would use that and then I would choose a matching pen whereas like and where with the the color had to be the same the pen doesn't necessarily have to be that color but it tends to be a fountain pen because I love fountain pens. Oh, really? Yeah. That's going to slow your writing down again, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And also, it's th- there's something wonderfully technical about them. You're aware yeah. of them. You're aware of the cartridges and choosing the ink colour. I love that. Oh, you are so a stationary freak, Helen. I know. Oh, you're kidding. <gasps> oh, my God. I found a box of stationery I had when I was like a teenager. And oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Recently, when I moved, there was like this, like, what's in, this is super heavy. What's in this? And uh, I opened it up and it was, um, you know, and all these, like, you know, like, they used to get, like, little scented rubbers for your pens and pencils. Oh, my God. So I found all this stuff in there that I'd been hoarding. And, and, you know, I mean, you should throw this away. (laughs) You know, this stuff is rotten. You know, they sort of like the rumbles, the rubbers are crumbled to dust and, and you're looking at it and you're like, I, I don't think I can. <laughs> <laughs> Rob moved out and found a box, but it was mine. But that's a whole other story, Helen. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, I, I stole Helen's uh, stationery box that she had left in my trusting care for three years, wasn't it, Helen? So technically, I think it was mine. <laughs> you had yeah. paid to move it. So I think, frankly, it probably is fair. But- <laughs> I digress. It's not important. I'm really intrigued by this color idea that, that yeah. you kind of, is that like, do you think that's kind of like um, anchoring yourself to the book and the story and the feeling of that? Yes. Story? In a way, it's almost like a mood board decision. Yeah. Because that is the other thing that I do. I collate mood boards. I make a playlist. There's, and there's a cynical side of me that thinks, well, you know, is this like procrastination activity around writing the book? But I'm not entirely sure that that's fair. I think I do. You get uh, value out of it, even if it is procrastination. Yes. It's yes. my father would call sharpening your pencils. So it's potentially yes. useful, uh, but it may not be just, it might just be an excuse for not doing it. But I like the idea of that kind of making everything around you trigger you to do this one thing. And if you're moving between projects, I can actually see how that would work really well. I find that really interesting. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, like, I I wouldn't stop. And those thoughts as well, um, particularly around the colours, and a a good example is the the one that I'm doing at the moment. So the colour that I chose, because I love moleskin, I must say I'm a bit moleskin. I was a big moleskin fan too. Oh man! Oh, that just um, I couldn't decide whether it was going to be. I actually ended up buying both. They were yellow or brown. Um, 
I did well, I did buy them both. So I've got the small yellow one and I got the bigger brown one. And I went to it was before lockdown, so I went to Canary Wharf and they embossed them for you. Nice. They oh, did. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Oh my god. So I had like the name of the book and my name embossed on the cover. And Brilliant. and it was this kind of um which colour was it? It's kind of almost like a chocolatey brown which was really unusual because the book is actually around shipwrecks. The book should have been blue, but I'd used blue for a previous one. And also a lot of the book, the thing that I wanted to come through with the book was this sense of um, it's Cornwall, it's beaches, it's what it's like above the waves as well. And I felt like this kept that in my head. So I have to say this is massively intriguing to me. I find it very, very interesting. Do you reuse, do you always use moleskin books now or do you just go shopping for a new notebook when you are about to start a new novel? I think I prefer, so by preference I'll choose a moleskin. Um, There was a point I think with another book which I've not started yet which is probably going to be, so my nano project while it's not going to be a whole novel is going to be putting together the planning for the next one because I'm just finishing the one that I'm doing now. And that one is set in a cruise to Antarctica. So it was very important to find the right color for that. And Moleskin, other than this bullet journal, had this absolutely beautiful, very pale mint green bullet journal. Ah. I can write the novel in a bullet journal. So in the end, I think I went for, I think it was a very pale purple, like a lilac. But Oh, I really wanted that mint green. Nice. Yeah. Nice. yeah. I'm just looking at all my moleskins set around here and thinking, do I choose them on colour? I, I think I probably do. Yeah. Just, uh, I'm just curious, Helen, does, does the colour influence the idea or do you have the idea first and then choose the colour? I think I have the idea first and choose the colour. Okay. Because if I can't find the exact right colour that I want, that's actually incredibly distressing to me. <laughs> I'm like a hamster. You know how they're always like tearing up the back. Like, where is the... No, I need the colour. It needs to be the colour. Um, and I think that is... And it's exactly what Helen said earlier. It's just to keep your head in... You know what I mean? These are the ideas around it. This is the colour. This is the feel. Because, of course, colours are linked to emotions. And mm. this is the stall I'm setting out. This is what I want to give it. I'm curious as well, you, you mentioned building a playlist. I'm assuming that's a sort of music, Spotify, yeah. Deezer playlist. Do you do you have a wide selection of your music on there? Or is it, you know, some, some authors I've heard have just one track and they just play it over and over again. Is yours a broad selection? And do you find that that influences what you're writing? It tends to be movie soundtracks because the kind of music that you're looking for, it needs to be music you're familiar with. It needs to not distract you while you're working. So there's two kinds of playlists, I think. There are playlists that you put together that give like a sense of the novel to people that are outside the project and, and raise those kind of emotions. But when I'm actually working... I don't necessarily want to be distracted by the music. The music in many ways is just a cover for peace and quiet. So what I tend to do is choose movie soundtracks. So, and some of them are brilliant and I've been able to use multiple times. So the soundtrack to, um, God, what's the movie? It's the Nolan movie, the Christopher Nolan movie about dreams. Um, I play that all the time. Um, I play an awful lot of, weirdly enough, the Nolan Batman movie 
Black Swan, the tractor, which is this kind of very strange kind of jerky take on Swan Lake. So basically they are soundtracks that they have this kind of like porpent, porpentous, porpentous is not a word, this kind of portentous sound and they raise this sense of suspense and um, menace. And when they're playing, for some reason, your thoughts seem to go at the speed of the music. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, I use an awful lot of them, but also in amongst it, I'll use um, songs that I know very well that are not likely to distract me, but again, raise that kind of emotion in me. I just wanted to ask, do, when you're building your playlist, is this something that you do from a technical point of view you sit down with a pen and paper a notebook and, and make a list of what you're going to do or does it arrive organically where you go this is my playlist for starting point and you know kind of the first time five things you want to listen to and then over time you go I need something different and you go and find something different to add to that playlist uh, to help you with the next phase or section or whatever so is it an organically grown thing or is it a pre-planned kind of I guess it's a little of both. So what will happen is um, I'll sit down and I'll go through. So it all happens online. So I'll go through my Apple Music and uh, my library and say, right, I want this, this, this and this and possibly a bit of this. And then when I have that, what will happen is I can hear another piece of music later on and think, oh, that needs to be in the playlist, I think. Or there'll be a piece of music I don't know well. And as I get to know it more and more, I'll think, yeah, yeah, that definitely. I love that. That definitely needs to be in the playlist. So that goes in. And then sometimes I'll update the playlist between drafts because, of course, books change a lot. Yeah. So you send it off and um, they're like, uh, mm-hmm. well, this, we'd like less of that and more of this. And you go and you have a think about that. I think, yeah. And then sometimes I'll tweak the playlist if that's what's happening. And you can get bored of your playlist as well. That's the other thing that can sometimes, and that is not very good. You shouldn't be listening to <laughs> so, yeah, you yeah. yourself, but you're also bored with it. You can't yeah. do it without it, but you're bored listening to it. Yeah, exactly. I can see that being problematic, Helen. Actually, yeah. <laughs> so the other thing I wanted to ask about was, um, so I know Rob has had a go at this. Is the writing retreat? So I know yeah. that you recently went on a writing retreat, and you're a massive fan. You were very. Mm-hmm. Um, very excited about going and you were very excited about the time that you'd had and yeah. that's where I found out that because you go with stationery right pen and paper and you kind of touched on that yeah I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what writing uh that kind of writing retreat does for you because I'd love to compare and contrast with Rob if I'm honest yeah sure I do two kinds of retreats so the ones that I go on myself when I've got the time and um And I find them very useful because like a writing retreat essentially is a period of time that you demark that is essentially, so I'm writing now, this is what we're doing now, and I'm concentrating on this. And um, when you do a retreat with other people, in many ways, that's a slightly different energy, but it's also rather wonderful because you've all gotten together and you've given yourself permission to concentrate on this. It's very, very easy to put writing to the very back of your day. I'm someone who actually has made money out of writing. This is kind of my job. But even instead, it's the thing that happens at the end of the day when all of these other um, quotidian things have happened. And I know this is bad, but 
you know, it's um, it's the way that it's always been. And it's actually quite a job of work to change that psychologically. When you go on a writing retreat, essentially you get up in the morning and you think, well, I'm going to be writing today and I'm going to be writing. And then someone else is going to cook you lunch, which is lovely. You go down, you have breakfast, you chat to people, you go away, you write. And sometimes when you're in these, especially in these big houses or, you know, places where they have like, you know, some of them are manor houses and they have like, you know, these massive tables and so forth. And you can see and hear other people working and it gives you permission almost to lose yourself in your own work. And um, and then you'll have lunch together. You'll ask people, you know, what are you doing? Um, what are you up to? And then you go do the afternoon Um you have dinner. A lot of people will then spend the evening socialising. I tend to be sort of, I tend to go back up and get back on with it, really. <laughs> so, and, you know, and try and maximise that time. It's just like, it's very nice because it's a lonely thing to do. It's actually nice to do it with other people. <laughs> so it's, um, I absolutely love them. And they're usually in really beautiful places that find like a really nice um, house or one of the ones that I did that I really loved and would recommend to anybody is Gladstone's Library. Ah, okay, good to know. Yeah, Gladstone's Library is like a weird one. It's William Gladstone's like Victorian Library and they're based up on the Welsh borders. And when you go, essentially, it's a kind of a cross between a monastery and a library. You go and uh, they have uh, this really beautiful carved wooden library where they maintain like traditional silence you're not allowed to chat in there people come up and hush you <laughs> and they, yeah yeah it's um and that is a really really useful place to be that's a lovely place I'd recommend that to anybody I can see that being really a great setting for that I mean does that appeal to you Rob is that how you would have oh yeah I just made copious <laughs> notes <laughs> the I, I think for me, it's the, the, the creativity with constraints and, you know, that yeah. constraint. And the, I, I love how you describe that, Helen, as that sort of permission. You see other people doing stuff is inspiring. You've got permission to do it, but you've also got constraints. You've got nothing else happening. You've got people doing lunch, if, if that's one of the things. That constraint of traditional silence sounds awesome to me. You know? yeah. um, I'd love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm making notes and I shall be Googling um, that retreat straight after this podcast. <laughs> Maybe we should include a link to that in the, in the podcast. Absolutely, well. yes. It's a, one, it's a wonderful atmosphere there because it's essentially a religious library. It's a theology, a library of theology. So you'll meet people there doing research. It's not They're not all novelists. So many, many of them are there doing research. They're doing their own projects. It's quite an interesting breakfast conversation sometimes there because it's a bit different from in a retreat where you're all together and you all know each other. Whereas in Gladstones, you don't necessarily know the other people that are there, but they are engaged in roughly similar activities. It's a residential library with rooms. It's strange again. Yeah, I'm going there in January, so um, for over the weekend, so that's quite nice. I'm looking forward to that. Very nice. Is that just something that they run periodically for authors or is it something that's always there and you just like a, a specialist hotel kind of thing exactly it's a specialist hotel it is a um it's a, just an ongoing resource and you and a bunch of friends can pitch up together or you can pitch up on your own anytime you like it's constantly on the go they've just reopened after being shut for lockdown it's a wonderful place recommend it to anyone and if you're in the society of authors they give you a discount so yeah 
You need to be published to belong to the Society of Authors, I guess. I don't think you do. I think what you have, I think one of the things that you have to do is you have to have been offered a contract of some kind. Uh, I don't think it has to be particularly, I'm not sure you do have to be published to be in the Society of Authors. It's a great thing to do, actually. They're really, really good. Oh, good. That's another good tip. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, check them out. Rob, have you got any questions or shall I go about asking the next big one for Helen? Uh, you you go for it. I'm, I'm building up a few tiny questions for the end. Um, so yeah, you go for it, Helen, because we might cover them anyway. And this is entirely, this is self-serving. There's no other reason I'm asking this than I actually want to know, Helen, which is how do you go about plotting? Now, I am partly asking because I've recently discovered that Rob has just, I mean, Rob pretends he hates bullet journals, just as a little aside. He pretends okay. he hates <laughs> Pretty much his entire life is gradually migrating towards one specialist kind of bullet journaling. And I know that he's recently taken on uh, the idea of a big A3 pad uh, or notebook in order to allow more real estate for mind mapping and generally getting all his ideas in one place and being able to see sort of on a horizontal plane his that part of his brain. So I'm really keen to know how you go about planning. Is that something that you, um, you know, how, how does that work for you? It's, so what tends to happen when I get the idea for a book, it tends to be, there's like, something will occur to me or I'll see something or I'll think something. And it's kind of, yeah, I wonder about that. And then it's not really a book though, or I don't think it's a potential project. There's a thing called, almost like the Ur scene. So there is a scene in the book that will happen somewhere in the book and you see people saying words and you see a thing happening or some outcome or event. And that is kind of the heart of the book. And sometimes that scene will end up not being in the book at all. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, particularly with the earlier novels, there are a couple of things there. I had a idea for the scene and I could see it and I could see the characters and it ended up not happening in the novel for various reasons. Like it was a spoiler or it, it was overtaken by other events. And when I have that, that is the thing that gets planned around because they're psychological thrillers. I have to plan them. You know, plot is front and center. It's kind of like a genre requirement for it. And it's very, very important that it all be quite tight. It has to have a tight beginning. There needs to be lots going on. It needs to stay in that very, um, as tight as, so every one of the psychological novels, the timeline and everything that happens to it just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. There is this constant process of, you know, like tuning a guitar, making sure that everything is as tight as possible. The only way, really, I think, to do it is you have a plan, which you draw up for each chapter, which you then don't follow. (laughs) So, yeah, because, I mean, like, you think you're going to follow it. I mean, like, it's not like you're writing it in this very, very cynical way, but you're writing it with a sense of, like, this is almost certainly not what the book is going to look like. (laughs) This is something that we can guarantee. So you write and then you start following the plan, but then inevitably what happens is particular, and this is why it's really important to do it every day and to be very, very engaged in it because this process of synthesis starts to happen whereby you're holding one thing in your head, 
and you're doing the other things in your head and eventually they come together. So there'll be this car crash whereby, hang on, if I've got this and this person is looking for this, these things can collide. And this is um, particularly useful when you're like, who's the villain? Who has, who's the murderer? Who's actually, you know what I mean? You know, done the wrong thing there. You don't decide that up front? Um, I do, Ah. but it changes. Ah. All of these things are decided up front. But with the author, you're playing God. It's awesome. It is. It's real. It is quite good fun. And then you just think, because the thing is, like, when that happens, it's like, well, I wasn't expecting that to happen. (gasps) How will anyone else? (laughs) Oh, my God. So, yeah. So um, quite a few of the twists in the book, they were never planned. And some of them actually appeared at really late stages. Like literally in the final edit, it's like, oh my God, but if this happened, no one, no one will guess. No one. Is I love it when an author surprises me. And yeah. and I love the fact that actually you're you're barely controlling this story. This stro- this story is a life of its own. I mean, that's super cool. The one that I'm writing right now, um, and there, you can get quite superstitious about it. You do have like these, I've always personally believed that um, when it's working, when you're writing, when you're in the flow, you have this feeling of ecstasy, not in the sense like we talk about ecstasy, but in the ancient Greek ecstasy, where which literally means sort of to be lifted up, to be possessed by the God. You don't see what time it is. You don't see um, how many hours have gone by. You know what I mean? You're not really aware of yourself. And it's this really fabulous state. And when it's working, it's really working. And when you're in that state, you can literally read back what you've done and not remember or recognize any of it. And um, it's harder and harder to pursue because you, because you the more that you apply actual craft to what you're doing. But in the olden days, I mean, like, you know, whole evenings could go by in this way. And one of the really strange things that I found while I was on the retreat recently was that I had an idea, um, and it was a really big idea. I'd spent hours, I'd written these scenes where people were murdered, and, um, and you know, and they were great, And but I was just, you know, closing the laptop for the night. I was actually on the laptop at that point. And, um, and I thought to myself, you need to cut those, and you need to do this instead. And I was like, no, but it's the final edit and they're wanting it and it's late. And I, and you know, and I know, and, and you need to cut this and write this other thing instead. And then I woke up the next morning and it was still in my head. You need ah. to cut that and you need to write this other. And it's like, all right, I give up. That's what I'm doing, I guess. So then it's like, you know, sort of like sad, apologetic. <laughs> like, hi, I, I'm having a lovely time on the retreat, but you know, this, this thing has happened. I think I'm going to be doing this, but you'll be really happy. I swear you'll be happy. And um, yeah, so you get a lot of that. You do get things that wake you up in the night. You get things that, um, you know, you, like you have an idea and think that, but it's so much more work, but you know, you just like, you know, you have to do it. <laughs> so Yeah. You mentioned typewriters earlier. Mm. Uh, I was just having a, a quick snoop on your Instagram page and we'll include all the links to where people can find you in the show notes. Oh, wow. And there's a, a picture of a, a typewriter. Have you ever 
thought maybe you should go back to using a typewriter, that sort of intermediate between computers and handwriting. Oh, do you know, I do miss them. So the typewriter, there's a really interesting story about the typewriter. It was, um, it's actually a prop from the National Theatre and Penguin found it and sourced it um, for promo pictures. And they actually put it in the window of the shop where we had the launch party. So that's why it's on the Instagram. I don't know where my typewriter is. I really loved it. Um, It was all I had when I was um, younger, but they're so noisy. Yeah. Oh my God. You wouldn't be able to hear your playlist, would you? Yeah, yeah. It's just ching, 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 ching. Um, I'm not sure that I miss them that much. All I remember about them was it was great when it was the only thing that I had, but my fingers were constantly covered in blue ink and messing about with the sodding ribbons. (laughs) Just, oh my God. They were an absolute night. And then sometimes some keys would be like, you know, a bit stickier than others. And like, it's like, oh my God, I'm going to hit a J in a minute. And it's like, it's just going to be empty and it's, I'm going to have to draw in the J and, oh, and correction fluid. And that was the other great thing. So when you were, I found a bunch of my old rejection letters because like, you know, really right to worth their salt. I had like all of these analog rejection letters and from the novel that I actually ended up selling actually about 20 years later. I found them all and uh, they, and you would send out submissions. Everything was by post. Um, So I spent an absolute fortune in, you would type them. And then if you wanted to edit or change anything, you literally had to retype the entire, all the entire submission, of course, because your changes would not necessarily match up with the next page the way they do now. And then you would get out all of that. Was it Jay's, what was it called? The white stuff. Tip X. Tip X and type over the top of it. So in a lot of ways, that as a format um, guided the content. So there was all of these like little interruptions of, you know, the ribbon, the keys, the noise. When you wanted to change something in it, the way that you altered um, the material. So you would then try and choose words and sentences that were roughly the same length (laughs) it's not creative constraints these are mechanical and not helpful constraints yeah and I guess but on the other hand sort of like I do sometimes hear that noise I there is a program you can download Tom Hanks actually still uses a typewriter and he created an app which will allow you to use that and get that noise um I'm not a fan but that's because of the constant noise I find irritating rather than helpful or reminiscent (laughs) it's true it's true it is it's I downloaded it it was it doesn't always work but I do have a thing that when I'm typing it will make the typewriter noise and every so often I do fancy it but in the main so some things some things were good uh, some things like uh, I have to leave in the past resigned that's it that's it I know certainly in the in the tech world that that we we operate in uh, those mechanical keyboards are, are very close to the noise of a typewriter and it drives me insane especially with the speed <laughs> yeah. that some people are typing you know it's just like please be quiet um, oh, that clack that clack. Oh, yeah definitely definitely I have one more one more question for you Helen, so um, you hear this sort of, you know, let's wait for inspiration and all that kind of stuff. Are you one of these people that waits for inspiration to strike or are you one of these people that just sits down and gets on and 
just finds ways to sort of do things at the same time every day? Um, I So I don't believe in waiting for inspiration to strike because inspiration is, it doesn't arrive when you say, inspiration has to be summoned. It doesn't just um, come. There was another writer, um, I think he writes SF actually, or I could be wrong, but he was saying sort of like, yeah, I only write when I'm inspired and I make sure that I'm inspired at nine o'clock every morning, Monday through Friday. It was like I was saying, I think about like this idea of synthesis It's actually only by writing that you have good ideas about writing. So really, you just have to sort of like you have to find the time and you just have to start. And once you have done this, then inspiration, not always. I mean, it's entirely possible to sit there for three hours and think, oh, that was like pulling teeth. And I've had books that, you know, what I mean, sort of like sometimes weeks can go by like this thinking, should I just abandon this? I'm not feeling it. But then when you do feel it, it is magical, mm-hmm. you know. But, and it makes sense. They do say that it's like, you know, five to 10% of what you're doing. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think you just, you have to just, you have to summon it. It has to be invoked. It can't be, it doesn't, sometimes it swoops in more often than not. No. I did want to mention one last thing, which is that one thing Helen did tell me was that when you are published, apparently you don't get to choose the title of your own book. <laughs> it's somewhat of a tragedy, but I wanted, it was really surprising to me. And I just wanted to just share that with people so that you can get an wow. influx of sympathy from everyone else who will feel that, that pain. <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like um, it's a case, I think, of surrendering to people who are experts in their field, which can sometimes be a bit difficult to do when you are someone that is, not really working that collaboratively. So I have like code names for them. So when I come up with them, obviously they have a name, they have a, um, but generally what happens is that when it goes back to the publisher, they're like, well, we think this title works better. And um, since we'll be marketing it and spending all that money on promoting it, you can always object. But generally speaking, you know, you just kind of go with it because um, they know what they're doing. I was going to say, that's a really professional, actually, that's the difference between a professional, I think, and an amateur, is that ability to kind of recognise that they're experts in that field. It was that's a really sort of, they're, I can't tell them, much more grown up than my response, which was, hey! <laughs> no, and I'm not entirely sure that it's true of every genre. So I think that possibly if you're writing in things like literary fiction, or possibly if you're writing in other genres or rom-coms, it might be a bit more loose, but they generally like to, because people do judge a book by a cover, you know, it is absolutely, and it's a very fine science working out what people respond to. You can see this a lot of the times when you actually go in any bookshop or even better, the supermarket, the supermarket is a much better example. And you will see the same motifs and fonts. See, this is a stationary conversation. The motifs (laughs) and the fonts and the colorways, and then they'll all be the same colorway. And then one will come out, which will have this different colorway and this different font, and then they'll all kind of move across. The thing that people don't think about books is that they're actually in production for years. By the time that something is actually bought, the tastes and standards of what people are reading, you know, are actually like two years in the past, as it were. The things that have all been purchased and that you're seeing now were all things that were bought and commissioned and so forth 
anything from five to years to 18 months ago. So oh, wow. uh, there's okay. the thing that they're, that they're, you're seeing now where people are like going to Frankfurt, they're buying these books and so forth, but no one's actually reading them till about two years down the line. So my forthcoming, hopefully, if I ever get around to writing it, book called The Squirrels That Ruined Everything might not actually be called that when it comes out. Yeah. Though I do think that's a great title. It's not bad, is it? I've just got to write the actual book. That's yeah, that's yeah. the that's the hindrance. Yeah. It's always the most time thinking thing is Absolutely. to write them. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today, Helen. Really is. I've been furiously scribbling loads of different notes. Really, really interesting conversation. Where can our listeners find you, Helen? What's the best place to uh, find your work and find you? Oh, well, the the novels are all on uh, Amazon. As I say, the new one, The Drowning Girls, will be coming out next year. But the others are Dear Amy, Everything is Lies, and uh, Nightfall Still Missing. You can find them on Amazon. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook under my own name. And I'm also on Instagram. I also have a Goodreads profile. I'm a Goodreads author. Basically, all the, I have a web page, which I should maintain more often, helencalhan.co.uk, and any of those ways will find me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving up your time to chat to oh. us and our listeners about stationery and authoring and all sorts of good inspiration. So brilliant, brilliant. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Helen Callahan, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. And as ever, it's a joy to talk to you. To our listeners, good luck to anyone who is currently working on NaNoWriMo. Oh, yeah. You're not alone. It's not easy. Um, and we're with you. It's in spirit. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and with that, we will close out the show. So thank you very much, uh, everybody who's listening to us. And don't forget, you can connect with us on Instagram at Stationary Freaks UK. And all of the stuff we've talked about today will be in the show notes. Do let us know what you think. And we will see you in the next podcast. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.